Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friends Jody Bottom and John Wilson for another conversation in our series on Kurosawa. We have already talked about high and low in our previous episode, and we will in future be talking about others of the Kurosawa movies that deal with modern Japan, post-war Japan the promise and the trauma of the coming of equality and the persistence of the old Japanese ways. Today we're talking about The Bad Sleep Well, the 1960 film that best exposes the character of Japanese society at the top, the character of Japanese elites, the way in which they both Americanize or modernize and the ways in which they don't, and the crisis of justice. Gentlemen, thanks a lot for joining me, for suggesting the title. It was wonderful to watch it again and to think through this as part of our broader series. How are you doing? We're both looking out at snow. <laughs> yeah, John's outside of Chicago and I'm in the Black Hills of South Dakota and snow is general across the West. Well, this is an adequate sentiment for the movie, I find. It would be a theme in Japanese poetry at any rate. I should briefly summarize the plot of the movie. The Bad Sleep Well is a revenge story. We start with an elaborate, exquisitely luxurious wedding scene of the upper class of Japan. We see the members of the public corporation and the Dairyu Construction Corporation. They are in white tie at this event. Japan has adopted, since the late 19th century, the formalities of Europe. We see the rich people from the beginning performing under a cloud of suspicion because the other element of modern society heavily featured is the press. The press is very democratic, ugly, intrusive. These people have no manners and there's a certain sense of urgency about them. They know some secret. Somebody's going to get arrested. And they are very cynical about this marriage of convenience for the somewhat crippled daughter of Iwabuchi, the vice president of the public corporation. In this atmosphere, we see both the beautiful and the suspicious. Both of these elements will propel the plot along as we get to see how the upper class live. What is the distinction between a democratic irreverence and oligarchic manners? And in between these two is the bridegroom himself, played by Toshiro Mifune. He is a man called Nishi, who has come from nothing, or rather successful entrepreneurs, we would say, but nothing compared to the respectability of Japanese society, and indeed these incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful people in business with the government. And nevertheless, he has gotten engaged and is now marrying this young woman and has become the personal secretary of the vice president, Iwabuchi. From the wedding onwards, however, the success of this corporation, represented by the men we see giving toasts and suffering shocks at the wedding, becomes a mystery. A contract that seems to have been fraudulent. Kickbacks, a word that is repeated throughout the movie. People who are successful enough get in bed with the government, and this is what we would call crony capitalism, but here it comes with an entire oligarchic system. Everything is, to some extent, above board. It's surprisingly public, and the authorities are surprisingly deferential. So instead of having some press investigation, or indeed a police investigation, which we see in the first act of the movie, it has to be a personal drama. It has to be a revenge drama. Everything turns around Toshiro Mifune, who turns out in the course of the story to be the son, the bastard at that, 
of another bureaucrat who had been forced by this Mr. Iwabuchi to commit suicide in order to make scandals go away. Everybody is corrupt, but proprieties have to be observed, and this includes ritual suicide under modern conditions. And now this young man, Nishi, has married into the Iwabuchi clan for purposes of revenge. From there, the drama unfolds with all the dignity of high drama. The characters stand for certain types. They all have claims that either align with the new or with the old society and bring about the full tragic conflict between public law and private law, as Hegel would say. So even in modern Japan, you raise the same problems of legitimacy that you had in the Middle Ages. That's great for storytelling, but it seems to be incredibly depressive for society, and indeed the entire third act is dominated by the image of a bombed-out munitions factory where the young man Nishi and his best friend used to work, which serves as a bunker and headquarters for their revenge operations right now. Here we see a vision of the ugliness of Japan, of the rubble, the things that all institutions are trying to hide, the corporations as much as the press and the police, since Japan has to be reborn. And it is in this bombed-out munitions factory that the ugly truth about the past can be revealed. So the years that have passed since 1945, since the end of the war, are viewed in a different light. Now, this should suffice by way of summary. Gentlemen, first of all, please tell me how you think about this film. Where do you start and what have you noticed in going back to it? Well, I thank you for that. Many accounts of the film seem to me to miss something that is quite essential to it, and that is that they fail to note Nishi, the protagonist's crusade against the corporation and its minions, is a matter of uh, revenge that goes beyond all bounds. It's never, not only not fully explained, it's not really explained at all quite why he carries it out with his ferocity, cruelty, even though it's absolutely clear the corporation and as you were saying standing in for the much larger structures of the society the corporation is corrupt to a sickening degree and there's a sense of helplessness that try to report something and it will be covered up quietly shuffled off the stage uh, there's nothing really you can do and so on and so on but it's very important to get the fact that this relentless crusade itself is off the rails. So that's one thing. And then another thing on a totally different level of the film is that I was really struck watching it just this week again, how much of the film, not just the part, as you said, in the remains of this munitions factory that they worked in during the Second World War, but there's a kind of faint horror movie vibe <laughs> to a lot of the scenes, a lot of the settings, it's highly stylized, and the whole film, in fact, it's not intended to be realistic. I mean, the problems that it's addressing are real problems, but many accounts of the film, they'll say things like, well, it lurches into uh, melodrama or something. Well, it doesn't lurch into that. Right from the very beginning, it is intended to be highly stylized, and that, again, is important in how we read the whole film. I think that's right, John. I think this film, more than any other that we've talked about, is, I think, badly interpreted. The interpretation runs down sidetracks that I don't think are helpful in actually understanding what's going on in this film. 
there are these stylized gestures, as for instance, when the secretary of the public corporation, who's the highest official and the target of the hero's revenge, he speaks on a few occasions with someone even higher up on the telephone, and he bows repeatedly while on the telephone. That figure is never heard. That figure is never seen. We just get this man's side of the conversation. Yeah. Very deferential. Now, I think it's key, and Titus mentioned this in his summary of the film, that the setting of all of this is a public corporation, which is to say it's not what we mean in America by a corporation. It's a government bureaucracy, a semi-governmental agency that builds buildings for the government, spending government money and getting contracts with private corporations. And we do see private corporations in this, the construction company with its officials that appear from time to time in threatening ways, telling the officials to clean up their mess. But you'll often see in discussions of this film, this is the great indictment of Enron. This is the, you know, the, the precursor to indictments of corrupt corporations in America. In fact, what this is, is a corruption of a public agency by the individuals within it who are siphoning off government funds while they're officially overseeing government contracts. And the figure that he's addressing on the phone is clearly intended to be the prime minister of the nation. It's someone at least very high up in the government itself that he's speaking to on the phone. Kurosawa expressed some unhappiness with this film because he didn't dare actually have a prime minister figure. He left that figure addressed on the phone anonymous. And in a remark, I don't know how serious he was about, Kurosawa would say it was a failure of courage on his part as a director. And that, you know, even though he had his own production company at this point, he didn't dare do that. Actually, the film gained from having that figure be unidentified. It's just the next chain up in this world that's corrupt from top to bottom. It illustrates how every single person is corrupt and reports to a corrupt superior. In fact, its timelessness would be ruined if we had, this is the specific prime minister of Japan in 1960. Instead, we get this view of a world that's corrupt all the way down and all the way up. That's just one chain of corruption. That's what gives its film noir feeling. Uh, Titus, John and I have had conversations over the years about Los Angeles, which is a world that John knew when he was young. He grew up in Southern California. There's this sense that comes out of everything one reads about Los Angeles from the 40s on, the moment of its great, you know, huge growth, that it really is corrupt from the archdiocese down to the street sweepers union. You know, it's just a world of corruption. The police are corrupt and the politics are corrupt. And in turn, our picture of it is influenced by the film noir tradition. And yet, this is not a film noir, exactly. You know, Kurosawa is throwing elements in here. For instance, there's a montage of headlines in this film, which is a clear gesture toward film noir techniques out of Hollywood. More, I believe, than in any other Kurosawa film, there's an enormous amount of time spent in cars. 
we get scene after scene of people riding in cars, which is not typical even for Kurosawa's, you know, modern films. That too is a kind of American gesture here. There's some ironies here that, again, are gestures toward the film noir tradition, and yet it's not exactly a film noir. The pacing of this movie is very odd, and John pointed to this. It's highly stylized. For instance, it opens with that wedding scene. The protagonist is marrying the bad guy's lame daughter. That scene takes 20 minutes. It's very long. And nothing happens exactly. I mean, the girl stumbles, and that's how we find out she's lame. Her brother helps her when he shouldn't be touching her in this wedding procession, and that kind of shocks the crowd. We have this strange chorus that I want to get back to of the press corps commenting upon it all. It's the most uncomfortable marriage banquet short of the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones. It's a very, (laughs) it's just profoundly uncomfortable. And it goes on for 20 minutes. Mm. It's a really extraordinary thing. You know, the Hollywood form of the B-level film noir would not have allowed you to do that. It was much more quickly moving filmmaking. So I want to say again and again, when you have a sense of what this film is, or you're told what this film is, that it's a retelling of Hamlet, that it's a film noir, at each point, I think you want to say, it's got those elements in it, but that's not what it is. Right. Yes, and we should point out this movie is two hours and a half and about the modern situation and partly to point out what a strange thing modern Japan is. So officious, at the same time so corrupt, so old and so new. You have these august figures and on the other hand you have the press. The press in fact do their job as you suggested. They introduce us to everybody, each corporate officer who is under suspicion or under indictment, who's relevant. And in fact, they depict the court of an aristocracy. A corporate officer in accounts doubles up as the master of ceremony for a wedding in the way in which a prime minister might have been a chamberman or, you know, the chancellor of the exchequer or what have you in previous centuries. Everything is both very personal and very impersonal. It's both modern and pre-modern. And that is a very strange mix perhaps not quite unique to Japan, but it's sort of like a noir movie. There is so much tension and so much corruption. And like in a noir movie, you see that there's a pretense of separation of private and public at grassroots level on the street, but at the top of society, there's no such separation. It is in fact one class of oligarchs who are very much interconnected. The public corporation into which Toshiro Mifune is marrying, that takes government money, and this important corporation in construction that's central to the plot, Dairyu Corporation, are in fact at the top very much united. And I completely agree with you that Kurosawa's suggestion is that the relationship between the villain in the story and the unseen voice, the unheard voice at that, is like the relationship between the politicians of Japan and the emperor. This august creature who is beyond even sight and sound, whose orders and whose will, however, must be fulfilled, disregarding whatever considerations of humanity or of law or whatever else. Yes, I think there's deep irony that runs through the film that is often quite bitter. One example of that would be near the end when uh, Wada, who's just such an extraordinary character, and it's really hard to watch him because, again, he's highly stylized. He is so cringing. He's so terrified. 
And the scene earlier where it's almost as if Nietzsche has him on the lip of hell. You know, he's supposed to commit suicide at this terrible site from which smoke is belching and he's supposed to throw himself over that edge. And he's restrained from doing so by Nietzsche, who treats him in a, just an abominable way. And of course, Watt has been guilty, as everybody in the chain has. He's lower down, but he has been guilty. But at the same time, Nietzsche treats him in such a terribly inhuman way. But near the end, Wada is doing something that he thinks is a kind act. He wants to bring Yoshiko, the wife, and Nishi together. He goes and brings her to the abandoned site where he's hanging out. And through that, the father is able to determine where Nishi is. And of course, that leads to his death. So <laughs> he... He's doing something out of kindness because he feels sympathy for the man who has been treating him so brutally, but who was on this revenge quest. He feels sympathy and he acts on that sympathy and the results are disastrous. But there are a whole lot of other ironies. That may be the most bitter, but throughout the film is important to uh, understanding that, of course, it's about corruption and how awful and pervasive it is. But it's not just about that. It's a certain picture of life that extends beyond that, that is just extremely bleak. Yeah, I think that's right. There are ironies here, high and low ironies happening all the time. I mean, I found actually the most unbearable of them was when Nishi and Wada were in the car watching Wada's funeral. Oh. Uh, it's a very moving scene, formality and the old Japan and the people bowing and his bosses showing up and Wada is moved by it and says, now I have to die. Then Nishi plays for him a tape recording mm. of his bosses at a nightclub joking about his death yeah. uh, the night before the ceremony, his supposed death, we should remind Listeners, that of course, Wada is reported as dead, but in fact has been captured by Nishi. And the music from the nightclub is captured on the tape and plays while this conversation of the drunken bosses is going on. So Wada's watching his formal funeral through the windshield of the car listening to his bosses make fun of him and joke about his death while this incredibly comic music is playing. That's so wonderful. The excuse for it is that it was what was playing at the nightclub, and so it's been captured on the tape. But I found the irony unbearable there, you know, that while they're joking about killing a man who's watching his own funeral. And there are a couple other places where the music carries irony in this film. You know, that's irony at the lowest level, and then it extends up to the level of the key plot turn, which John just pointed out. This minor bad guy's one good act turns out to be the device by which it all goes south. You know, the ironies here add up to, well, what do they add up to? I mean, that's kind of a question. This film ends with the defeat of revenge. It ends with the defeat of Nishi, the main character, who's murdered and made to look like a drunk driving fatality. It doesn't end in any way that's really satisfying in terms of a moral arc. The chain of corruption is left untouched. 
the individuals are left untouched, except for Iwabuchi, the main bad guy, his son and daughter abandoned him. But even that, as they're leaving, saying, we don't want to see you anymore, he starts to follow them out the door to stop them. Then his phone rings and he goes back into the office and answers the phone. And it's this mysterious superior to whom he bows while he's talking. He starts to say he should resign, but the mysterious figure doesn't want him to. And he agrees to that and says, uh, you know, I, I mistook night for day. He says at the literal very end of the film, good night, and then laughs and says, oh, I mistook night for day. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, wow, you know, okay. This is as bleak. If we read this as a film noir or as some kind of moral arc, this is as bleak a film as you could imagine. Yes, I think that's true. And I think part of the strangeness of the movie comes from the fact that it is split both as plot and as storytelling between these two phenomenal men. Iwabuchi, the villain, who succeeds at the end, it would seem, but at the price of losing everything, and Nishi, played by Toshiro Mifune, who is extraordinary. He is a hero in the full tragic sense as we have already pointed out, with very little concern for everybody else, but very capable of love at the same time. A man of strong passions and intellect, and nevertheless, he dies. It's over for him. Uh, One of my Korean friends likes to joke that if Freud had not been European but Asian, he wouldn't have come up with something like an Oedipus complex of a rebellious son, but an Agamemnon complex of a father who murders his own child to get what he wants. And this movie is very good evidence of that. If you want to see moral development in the film, it might be the reverse journeys, the crisscrossing journeys of Nishi and Iwabuchi, because they are both shown at different points as having more than one side. There are a couple interesting scenes. There's the wedding, of course, of his daughter, but there's a scene where Iwabuchi is cooking. The barbecue, yeah. Very important scene. Right. Family is important to him. It shows that he has this other side. And at the very end of the film, he chooses the corrupt public link in the chain of corruption. He chooses that side of himself. Now, it's not clear that he had any real choice left because his children are walking out the door. But regardless of whether he could have stopped them or ought to have pursued them or gone and apologized or done something, he chooses to turn back into the office and bow on the telephone. With Nishi, you get someone who's very cold, who appears to have only one side, which is, again, a public figure. He is involved in a plot, his own plot, to achieve something in the world. And he's very cold. Mifune, the extraordinary actor who plays him, plays him with such a blank face and such control. Mm. Uh, The glasses he wears help. Yes, Uh, But he's got this wife whom he admits, actually, to his friend that he married just for the sake of advancing his revenge fantasy. He's very cold to her in some ways. I mean, he's polite because that's his persona, not loving. And at the end, really, of one of the last times we see him, he's moved in the opposite direction. We see the other side of him, which Mm. is the family side. So these two men both have a public side and a family side. But Nishi appears to be moving toward the family side. He admits to his lame wife that he does actually love her, that he's come to love her. There's a tenderness there that he's starting to allow. 
and we get a sense that he's moving from this public career of revenge, you know, I mean, it's private in one sense that it's illegal, but he's pushing toward the personal. And Iwabuchi is moving in the other direction, but they both have these two sides. So there is a kind of moral movement in both of them toward choosing one of their sides. Yes, I think that's very much true. And it resolves as a full opposition of private and public. In the last act, we hear about our protagonist, Nishi, what his childhood was, where his family is from, how he fell in love. We see him with his best friend. They reminisce about their old days as poor starving children in the ruins of the war. All of this interior stuff comes out that had been repressed before. You're very much right. Mm -hmm. And with the father, it's the other way around. As a rule, you expect that in a tragedy, the tragic protagonist does not conceive the plot at the core of his tragedy. In this case, Nishi, the Toshiro Mifune protagonist, does, but it fails. This is why I suggest that the plot is in fact in two different ways, and we could look at it this way. This is the honeymoon. This is what would have been the honeymoon had the young bride and bridegroom been capable of one. He cannot go on a honeymoon because he wants revenge, and she cannot because she is lame. They're both, in fact, lame. She in body, he in heart. So we can also see in that way as a honeymoon what is lost. The full legitimation of the life of crime, right? We say crime doesn't pay. There's police to punish you. But what if the crime is on a sufficient scale that you get away with it? You can die a happy tyrant if there's such a thing like Stalin. This is what is attempted. This man, Iwabuchi, the villain, has incredible wealth. He has caused people to murder other people and is pretty happy about it. He can fit a murder between the barbecue interrupted and the good night's sleep, of course. And he's about to succeed. He is about to recruit the kind of young man that would not only take his lame daughter off his hands, but make her happy, which he obviously cares about, and give him an heir, which he could not get otherwise, since his son is a drunkard and hates him as rebellious. This would be the full success that this man is looking for. What does he get instead? Both his children abandon and hate him. He has killed his son-in-law who would be his future. And at the same time, he is exiled. He proposes for himself retirement. Do what so many generations of Japanese aristocrats have done, retreat into a monastery somewhere. But no, he is exiled from Japan, actually. And, as you pointed out, he mistakes day for night, because it's good night for him, it's curtains here. He has been annihilated, both in his public and in his private life. He will have Japan denied him, actually. That's wonderful. Titus, apropos of your own fascination with reading these films in the way of high political theory, I want to offer a parallel with Dickens, if I can. It's a fairly common complaint, you'll find it in George Orwell, for instance, that Dickens did not understand systemic evil. He knew evil, and that's why Orwell says Dickens is a writer worth fighting for. But it's common to say he understood evil not as requiring social revolution, but as requiring only individual reformation. Consequently, he was incapable of understanding systemic evil. Now, I don't buy this. You know, it reaches its peak when a famous French critic describes Dickens as having nothing more than a philosophy de Noël, a Christmas philosophy. Uh, But it does set up the problem that I think would help us understand what makes this film so peculiar. Kurosawa's own impulses and, I believe, the structural forms of movie making 
they combine to tend to want to find individual reformation, the character reborn, the character saved, the character come to the great realization that they had not known themselves. This is what movies want to do, I believe, as an art form. And Kurosawa wants to see the person saved, the person come to understanding. This film leaves Kurosawa with no solution. One of the reasons this is dark is we have a systemic evil here, this chain of corruption that reaches all the way from the prime minister down to the corporate assistant officer for contracts in the public corporation of land use, WADA, from top to bottom. It needs a systemic solution, and we don't get it. We don't know how to get it. There are causes for the corruption. Some of them are based on the survival of medieval Japanese elements, like this willingness to kill yourself for your superior, which might have made sense in a samurai setting of medieval Japan, but makes absolutely no sense and is hard for Western audiences to get at all. In 1960 Japan, where it's used as a device for corruption, so everything's turned to corruption, the elements of medieval Japan, the modern business stuff, the modern government stuff, it's all turned to corruption. We have a systematic social evil here. No individual reformation will save it, will fix it. And in fact, individual reformations are not on offer here. If anybody gets redeemed, it's maybe the son of Iwabuchi, the chief villain, but really, the systematic problem, I think, is not easily addressed in the art of filmmaking, and certainly not easily addressed by Kurosawa with his character-focused filmmaking. And that leaves it as a problem for which this movie can offer no solution. Yes, I want to go back for just a second to a scene that the barbecue, they're out on a patio, I'm not sure what they would call it. And Iwabuchi offers a piece of meat that he's just taken off to Yoshiko and, and she takes it and then it's too hot. So he solicitously comes over, takes it back, and then he holds it with the cooking fork and he blows on it to cool it off. And he does it in a kind of theatrical way, like so much in the film. It's deliberately overdone. You know, he doesn't just blow on it once or twice and, and he takes these deep breaths and gives her this very affectionate and also humorous look as he hands it back to her. For me, it would be fun to go through the film and pick out maybe about 10 scenes like that. Another would be the one that Jody mentioned that involves listening to the uh, tape recorder during the funeral <laughs> when Wada hears this recording. They just condense the irony in a way that's absolutely brilliant. And you're admiring it as you watch. And at the same time, it's painful. It's painful to watch. So I know some people deprecate the film, and I think it's an absolutely extraordinary film, and it's very hard to watch, but those moments that condense the prevailing irony of the film are just fantastic. Yeah, I completely agree. Just to look again at this scene in the car, which is so important to the plot because it's so revealing. You have two things happening. One is in the car, one is outside at the temple. In the car, everything is modern. It's not just that these men are in suits, but they are in an automobile, a modern American car. At some point, you hear people ordering American cars. Every car is American here. And they're on a tape recorder. 
That's another right. modern technological thing. What is this for? The car is for privacy. You're secretive there. You can't be seen. And the tape recorder is so that you can violate the privacy of other people. Modern technology will reveal the private secrets of these oligarchs. Out there in the world is this temple. Everybody's proper. Everybody's conservative, traditional. Everybody's paying his respect. Indeed, the very show of piety makes Wada think that now he has to die. These people are so in earnest, they suffer so much for him, he should be dead by rights. And that shows you something troubling why it is that people are willing to commit so many injustices or tolerate them in the name of tradition. And Nishi knows this, and so he's using this very scene in order to kill the piety in Wada, to show him that piety is nothing but a lie. It mm. is how the powerful kill the weak, and in the process, get some whores and fun music to go around. This is incredibly shocking thing there. And that is the plan of Nishi, and that is the radical opposition. If you look at the stories that you find in Japan or China or in other societies like that, there is no happy end. The protagonist, to enter into conflict with society, would have to find an independent ground on which to stake his claim. But there is no such thing. And instead, the society must win. In some stories, the rebellious protagonists consent to their own destruction because they become convinced that order is more important than the chaos that comes with freedom. However unjust, order at least makes things possible. In this case, the survival of Japan. The very men who brought Japan to the brink of destruction in World War II and all their horrifying crimes, they nevertheless must be tolerated to rebuild Japan since they are indeed these incredibly competent organizers, partly because they have absolutely no respect for what we would call human life or indeed human nature. Nishi hopes to learn from them. He says that you have to, in looking at the evil, learn to be evil. And only then will yeah. you be strong enough. Only then will you have the necessary capacity. And this kind of therapy of revealing evil in a personal way so that the man sees his own funeral is supposed to kill him in a certain sense. To kill his respect for all these other people whom he has always obeyed. But this shock mm. therapy fails. And indeed Wada returns to what he thinks of as private morality as we said, appeal to this girl who actually loves her husband and the husband actually loves her, appeal to good people, decent people. Indeed, we learn that the son of the industrialist is such a screw-up because he knows his father is evil and yet must admit his father has always done good for him and he is so much more competent and has achieved so much more. He cannot stand independently. Neither, of course, can the lame daughter. Nobody can, in fact. Every attempt to out, to blow the whistle, as we would say in America, fails. It's not that the police and the press are corrupt. They're not that corrupt. The press is willing to blow the whistle. The police is willing to investigate criminals. But they can never reach the big fish. These new institutions, these new technologies, these new ways are powerful, but they are under the control of something much older, which receives its power from the sacred quality of private life, family and the funeral. And so long as those things continue, as we see the funeral and the fact that the daughter confides in her father, whom she knows to be a murderer plotting the destruction of her husband, because of this willingness to believe in a family goodness, the whole plot must come unraveled. The woman trusts her husband, but she trusts her father too, and there can be no compromise between the two in the given case. Titus, if, if I can, I want to turn this for a moment in a slightly different direction, based on something John said. The first time I saw this film, I had seen references to it as one of Kurosawa's Shakespeare films, 
like his retelling in Macbeth, his explicit retelling of King Lear in Ron. And this was often offered as another of his Shakespeare plays, his retelling of Hamlet. And the second thing I heard before I saw this film the first time was that it was part of his trilogy of film noirs. So I went into this movie with those ideas in mind, and I disliked the film. It seemed to me, as a retelling of Hamlet, it was incompetent. The elements of the story, the whole Hamlet plot is not clear at all in this. His wife, to whom he admits his love, is no Ophelia. Again and again, I just didn't see this as any kind of retelling of Hamlet. And as film noir, thinking of the classic B-level American film noirs, it's oddly paced. It seemed inefficient storytelling. And the one thing those second-grade film noirs had, much less the great film noirs, but the second-rate ones had economy of pacing. Tautness. Exactly. And when you spend 20 minutes out of this film at the opening scene of a wedding, it's far from taut. And the movie, as Titus pointed out, is two and a half hours long, whereas they were getting in and out of these film noirs in 90 minutes, no problem, sometimes much less. There was an efficiency to them and their storytelling. And when I've seen it more recently, Titus, The Bad Sleep Well, I realized, or at least I've come to a decision, that the ways we are told by critics, the commonly received opinions of these films, are actually impediments to understanding what is going on. If we see the film instead as a film littered with a few Hamlet references, there's a ghostly scene, there's the plot of revenge for a dead father. Although notice, by the way, Nishi never says he's going to kill these people. He wants to destroy them in the sense of expose them to public shame and ridicule and jail. But he doesn't kill them or plan to kill them, even though, as John pointed out, he's violent and cruel. But this is not the Hamlet plot of the individual seeking to murder those who murdered his father. And in the same way, it's a film littered with film noir elements, gestures toward the American tradition of the film noir. This is the riding in cars the newspaper headline montage, the darkness, the willingness to use shadows and show odd urban spaces like the old munitions factory. These are gestures of the film noir. They're references to the film noir, but they are not film noir. And if we take this movie littered with Hamlet and film noir references, but not in itself a retelling of Hamlet and not a film noir, then we can ask ourselves, well, what is it? And I actually have an answer, at least an answer that's kicking around. This is only the fetus of a thought, Titus, and you know, maybe you can help me bring it to birth. It strikes me that this is essentially a Roman drama or an opera. Dana Joya had a very interesting essay he attached to a translation he had done of one of Seneca's plays, I think Phaedra. He talks about this path that's commonly told us this revenge drama that the Romans developed gave us Renaissance drama, gave us Shakespeare, and moves on into film. But Dana says the actual air of revenge dramas from the Roman classical dramas is opera, not novels, not Renaissance, not Shakespeare. It's opera in which plot is really secondary to highly charged emotional scenes. 
And we see this, for instance, there is not a film noir ever made that would not have shown Nietzsche being murdered. His struggles, his heroic fight, where he made his last stand. You can't make a film noir without that. But we get it retold in really overwrought emotional tones by his friend. Mm-hmm. Here is his raincoat, and he actually lifts up the sleeve of the raincoat as though Nishi were still in it. It's this overwrought scene, like a scene out of an opera, where we get the great singing moment. And again and again, if you think of the wedding as an operatic scene, if you think of the funeral as an operatic scene, this is a movie, it's not an opera, but in formation, it is storytelling that exists in order to set up deeply wrought emotional scenes, which can then be played out. You know, it really shows up, for instance, in the wife, Yoshiko's passivity through the whole end of the movie. She's manhandled like a doll by her brother through to the end of the film. Her brother's carrying her in the father's office and out again. It's very odd and interesting, but if Roman revenge drama gave us opera, as Dana has argued, then this isn't a Renaissance revenge play out of Shakespeare. This is a Roman revenge play out of the operatic line. I found that as a helpful way to see why this film is paced the way that it is, why it's not taught storytelling because the storytelling is almost incidental to the setting up of these powerful scenes, some of which actually make no sense. You remember when the figure can't find his seal, they've been robbed in the bank, and he needs his seal and key, and he can't find it in his suit, so he goes out into Nishi's office, the secretary's office, to get his briefcase. Then they discover money in there, and then everyone thinks that he's corrupt or that he's stolen from them. Nishi, of course, has put the money in. But if you look at that scene, you see something that Hitchcock will do from time to time, which is cheat with false suspense. Nishi has the whole time that the bad guys are all together in the inner office to put the money in the briefcase. And instead, he only puts the money in the briefcase in little final seconds he's almost caught. That's false suspense. And I think really interesting in the pacing of this. Yeah, I think this is far more like reading Seneca than it is like reading Shakespeare. In Shakespeare, justice counts a lot. Whereas the setting of the Roman Empire or the moral horizons, as we might say, are clearly the radical disjointment of law and justice since the emperor can very well be a monster. There is no longer any independent ground on which one could stand in order to claim justice. The tyranny and the divinity of the emperor are identical. The republican, or the same notion of freedom that is necessary for Greek tragedy, it's gone. It was recovered in modernity, but that is entirely separate, we may say. And I think you're completely right about that aspect. And also about the importance of emotion, of carrying the audience not through action, but through all these ways of staging and heightening emotion so that we understand what's really at stake beyond what might be mundane events. The modern society, all these rich people who are playing around with other people's lives and the future of the nation, uh, they're just bureaucrats. They are not great commanders, they are not larger-than-life figures, they are just bureaucrats. 
you need some way to convey the importance to human beings of life and death, of all our hopes and all our fears. The staging, the music, the camera work, that's how you're going to achieve that in the element of film, just like you would have all the equivalences you suggested in opera. It's very important to somehow compensate for how dreary, in a way, or boring, or middle-class modernity is, and on the other hand, to bring out, you know, why are we so fascinated? Japan especially is a very peaceful society, but America is also a peaceful society, and yet we are infinitely fascinated with crime, murder, catastrophe. You have to bring out somehow why that is. Those passions have to be brought out, examined, expressed, articulated. The other element, Titus, that I didn't mention and we should put into play here for our listeners that ties it to classical drama rather than Shakespeare is the use of all those journalists as a Greek chorus. They serve Mm -hmm. uh, the same purpose in this film that choruses fulfilled in Greek drama and since we're tying it explicitly to Seneca and that line of revenge drama out of Rome that they did in Roman dramas. They do exposition efficiently. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that the chorus is used for. They provide raw commentary and they say what you might be thinking. If we don't know what to make of the wedding scene, the director cuts to the cynical journalists who say he's only marrying her for her money and his position. And the chorus returns several times, including at the very end. You know, they are certain that something's gone wrong, but they're unable to penetrate the lie that Nisha died in a drunken accident. They serve a function in the film that is akin to what the chorus serves in classical drama. That's true not just in the thematic ways, but in the literal efficiency of storytelling. They perform exactly the same functions. Yeah, well said. Yes, I completely agree. And in fact, I'm especially taken with your suggestion about what power the press has of presenting, of penetrating the manners and mores and speaking directly to us. Because the press disappears and reappears. And most of the movie, it's not there. Because we have, like Nishi, at the moment when Nishi does, entered into the household of his new father-in-law, Iwabuchi. That is not accessible to everybody else. All of a sudden, we move in a different situation where messengers, right-hand men, minions and henchmen show up and play their different parts. It's the very opposite of this very democratic, very direct way of speaking of the press that just tells you what the people might be saying. It's the vulgar opinion. It is quite insightful, but also in certain ways deceived because it cannot exceed its sphere. Somehow, both the machinations of the powerful, the rulers of Japan, and the machinations of Nishi are beyond what the press can conceive of, and indeed, of course, the police. So they are deceived in the beginning to an extent. To an extent, they are wise to things that they simply cannot change because corruption is too strong. But at the end, they are fully taken in. Nishi will die a drunkard, supposedly, who got people killed in a car accident through his negligence. His reputation, his very identity, in fact, have been counterfeited. This completes what the powerful men who know the insides of things and the insides of houses can do, unlike the press, which is always stuck outside or in the vestibules. Powerful people get suspicion and get confirmation from the widow of Nishi's father of what his real identity is. They have knowledge of people, secret knowledge, private knowledge. 
that turns out to be very important because Nishi is fitted for his role just like his enemy Iwabuchi is. What makes Iwabuchi such a perfect criminal is that he's a very good father, as much as is possible, of course, for a very evil man. That is to say, had he not had this conservatism, this household life, he would not have been fit for the obedience and had not been tempted by the achievements that were offered him. Whereas what fits Nishi for his role as a wannabe revolutionary bringing down the whole corrupt system is the fact that he's a bastard. He was never respectable, he was never part of this world. At the end, this is fulfilled in the fact that he loses his very identity. He had never had the identity he wanted in revenge to finally be his father's son. Indeed, his father abandoned his family legally, publicly, not privately. Privately, he raised his son up until he had to officially tell him the ugly truth. But he had to abandon the woman and the child to make an advantageous marriage like Nishi himself makes. He had to prefer the public order and get the privileges, get this money, which ends up financing Nishi's campaign. It's the corruption of the rich that creates an opening for Nishi, and it is at the same time the natural love that makes them vulnerable, of Nishi's father for his bastard or of Iwabuchi for his two children. It makes both of them vulnerable, and it allows for this entire drama to go where the press cannot follow, but which has to be revealed for us to see, to complete a picture that you would never really get from the papers, that you would never really get in the press releases of the police force, because these things can be hushed up. They're private. Yes. There's a, a moment, John, where um, he says, it's horrifying that it's all so simple and yet so foul. Mm -hmm. A very Shakespearean kind of line. Wonderful line. It's also a place where I want to take a slight exception to what Titus was telling us, most of which I think was spot on. But I don't see Nishi as a revolutionary. This takes us to that question that I raised earlier out of George Orwell's critique of Dickens. What's the difference between fighting systematic evil and personal reformation? Is Scrooge the answer? Are the Cheerable Brothers the answer? Are good individuals reformed to goodness the answer to the problems of society? Or do we need socialist revolution? This would be Orwell's description of the divide. Mifune's character, Nishi, it seems to me, is not aiming explicitly at the destruction of the system. Now, that would be a consequence of his cosmic demand for justice. John has told us that his revenge fantasy is unlimited. He's willing to slap around a villain, but a really minor villain and an inoffensive little guy. And he's able to just slap him around. He starves a character. His demand for cosmic justice is unlimited. And yet it's directed at the individuals whom he knows were involved in his father's death. Yes. You know, it's not about let's bring this whole thing down and march in the streets waving red flags. It's not revolutionary in that sense. But then the prophet here, which I, he's not, but characters that feel something at the cosmic level are often revolutionaries only in that secondary sense. What they're out after is something really very precise and narrow and small. He wants to see these men ruined in their reputations, perhaps by being sent to jail. 
you know, his wife has to go along with this and then also respond to her father. She's in an odd place. But through it all, I don't see him as desiring the reformation of this system, which is possible to read in a non-political way. Now, Titus, in our conversations, you always go off in a political theory line, and amen. It's really helpful. In particular, I think it really deepened our discussion of the hidden fortress. But in this case, I wonder if it does. The timelessness that's achieved by not naming the figure, the top of the chain on the phone, makes the corruption here seem like a cosmic problem. It's tied to the fallen world, to human nature, to the fact that we live in imperfection where, you know, we can say with Hamlet, you know, what a piece of work is man's, how like unto the angels. And yet with Hamlet, he pleases me not. The human is corrupt and vile and stinking. And this problem, which is systematic, is systematic in the human. Yes, the political is deeply helpful, but I would take it also in a metaphysical direction and say what we get is the disjunction of the universe, the time out of joint. The person who rebels against that is not a revolutionary in a political sense. He's someone who looks at the disorder of the world and cries no more. You know, there isn't a solution that the human can have to that. Because we are not Christ, we cannot achieve cosmic reordering. You know, so it gets brought down to individual and particular reordering. His revenge is directed at these men. But it proceeds not from a political revolutionary feeling, but from a cosmic revolutionary feeling. He wants the world reordered. Yes, I think that's true. It's important to see that indeed it's nothing like the modern socialist or communist revolution of the 19th or 20th centuries. There were communists in Japan. This was a known possibility at the time. Of course, the USSR was a going concern, as we might say, and that is indeed excluded by complete silence. I meant revolutionary in the sense in which Achilles is revolutionary when he wants to pull out his sword and kill Agamemnon, the rightful king, in the opening scene of the Iliad. This cosmic anger at injustice immediately leads to try to kill the king. Anger is a revolutionary passion by its nature because it implies I could do it better. And indeed Nishi does, as you say, want to reveal the truth to the world. He's not satisfied with knowing it himself or with his friends or getting that good feeling you get when you murder your enemies. He wants it in the press. He wants the police involved. He wants public information. Indeed, the whole uh, misery at the end is that the people left alive who know the ugly truth are some of them villains and the good guys powerless because they cannot publicize it. Nishi thought that he would be the man who could do all this. Know the private truth, but also publicize it. Get the police involved, get the press involved. It would be a political transformation of Japan, but indeed not a revolution in the ideological sense. It would be this boy who grew up in the ruins of Japan and the victim of the oligarchy that convinced his father first to abandon him, disown him, take away his name, and then die. It would be a chance for all those people who suffered what the rulers of Japan put Japan through in the Second World War to put an end to that system. It would be political in the sense that these corrupt people could no longer use all the formalities of religion, of family, of law even, in order to make themselves rich and make the other people miserable. That's what Nishi stands for, that part of Japanese character that rebels against this terrible, terrible system. 
It's not ideological in any way. It starts, as you say, from something deeply human and natural and cosmic. The cry against injustice. We have no need of theory or of even an education to know injustice, that there are unjust laws. Everyone has always known that. I completely agree with you in this regard. And furthermore, that an ideological reading would not be helpful. Kurosawa excludes it, partly, I would think, by temper, but partly because his thinking is, as you suggest, how does this come out of the human heart? What would correspond to this? As an artist, he weaves a plot that he puts in Nishi's hands that would solve the problem. In our imagination, at least, in the element of the beautiful, of storytelling and images, we can see a way out. There is that hope held out that maybe the good guys win this time. Maybe this time around, the bad guys will have to pay for it. Or at any rate, they will be chastised, they will be rebuked. It's not nothing, since now we know. Cinema has a certain power to affect sentiment, as poetry always has. In a certain way, it is, as Shelley said, that poets are the true legislators of mankind. But tragic poets remind us that you can't get as much as you would want. That our natural desires cannot be fully satisfied because of the very way in which we might go around satisfying them, which is political only in the sense that we have to live together with some arrangements not political in the sense of having this particular ideology or that particular government or that particular regime even. It is fundamental and timeless in that sense. We always need to come together. The audience is another name for the electorate, after all, or the people. But we cannot, for that very reason, achieve the justice that we so deeply desire and without which we wouldn't feel for these characters. We do not fear and, and hope for the villain as we do for the hero. At least maybe that is what is natural in us that we can save. We can still know the difference between right and wrong, even or especially when we admit that sometimes necessity is stronger than justice and the bad guys win. Just picking up one more time our classical theme, you mentioned Achilles. And just last night, I was looking again at Simone Weil's great essay on the Iliad as a poem of force. Mm. It strikes me to mention Achilles in this context and then to think about force in this play as opera or as revenge classical drama. Simone Weil insists that force as human beings feel it is by its nature unlimited. The human tragedy of these men of force comes because when they are filled with forcefulness, when they act with violence and so on, they cannot imagine not having it so that nothing constrains them. This human suffering that this causes is built into the very nature of action, which reaches its peak in violence. She makes the point, I think, very interestingly, that the constant gauziness and use of metaphor and paraphrase in the Iliad is done for all the good things. When Homer describes violence, it's always very precise and unpoetic in that romantic sense of the word poetic. It's about eyeballs and jaws breaking and teeth flying out. And then we get, oh, and isn't love and family good? She says Homer's playing that off. What Homer sees is that forcefulness itself is violent and knows no ends. It has no resolution because it will always expand until it meets its defeat and turns into tragedy. And that there is no solution to this, she thinks, except acknowledging human suffering in the context of love.
if we strip the Christianity out, there is a way to look at the forcefulness of these men who know no limits in that horrifying funeral scene with the up-tempo, upbeat music playing in the nightclub on the recording. It ends with one of them saying he, he would feel kind of bad and another one telling him, go get a girl, meaning a prostitute, right? right? And you'll feel better, right? That's a kind of relief. These are the men here that we're talking about who know no limits to their action in the world. And Nishi knows no limits to his actions in the world, and it ends in tragedy for him because there isn't a solution to the cosmic problem. We can cry, and the figures who cry for justice are noble figures. And people keep saying through the movie, Nisha had a sense of justice. We get told that several times. That's this cosmic outrage at the cosmic injustice of the world. He decides to act on it. He decides to be forceful. He says, you know, if I need to be a villain to do this, I will be a villain. In order to fight evil, I have to become evil. He says these kinds of things. He makes himself forceful. There's a moment of backtracking when he and his wife reconcile and he admits that he's grown to love her. But his forceful action in the world, I think as Simone Weil would have seen, can only end in tragedy. And lo and behold, that is where it ends. Yes, I largely agree. I would say that the limit of that interpretation is that Nishi is not undone by his force, but by his relapsing into mere humanity, falling in love, trusting his wife, allowing a certain friendship, which is also a form of love, with Wada to lead him into this humanity. Perhaps that shows an inner necessity, like Achilles does cry and call for his mother, the goddess, so also Nishi does need these people to know him. He needs to confess to his wife who he really is, that he is not a monster, that he was once a child and how life turned him into this path which he has chosen but is now trying to get out of. For most of the story he seems a free man, this sort of demigod of the Iliad, a man who is a god for a while, undefeatable right up until death. But then he begins to reveal himself in a way that suggests he's aware of his tragic fate. He wants somebody else to know who he really was. He doesn't want to be reduced to his actions. Mm -hmm. He would like to explain that he wasn't in fact all that free. That he is not this indomitable tyrant, this figure of necessity that terrorizes the other people. As you said, he starves a man, he terrorizes another into insanity. Even this low bureaucrat, Wada, he tortures him morally to get him to collaborate. There is all this ugliness in him and this violence, but at the same time, he turns around to say that he did not choose this freely. He is not his own man, in a sense. He was set on this path by a necessity. He wants to be his father's son, in some sense, after all. To do something for his father, and therefore reclaim everything that was taken from him. And that shows that he is beginning to be aware of the limits of freedom, and of the rule of deeper cosmic necessities, like the relationship between father and son, or the relationship between husband and wife. It is these things that make him merely human, that as soon as he realizes them, they destroy him. Gentlemen, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I'm really glad that we were able to uh, talk about the film, and I look forward to seeing what magic you make of it when you turn it into the finished podcast.
Yep. Thanks, Titus and John. It's always good to talk. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. It was a wonderful conversation. It's always good to have the chance to watch Kurosawa again, but so much more so when I am also looking forward to talk to you. Another I time watched. we can... Thank you. Perhaps another time we can talk about... We mentioned Straight Dog. Yes, let's continue. Yeah, more Kurosawa or something else. I enjoy our conversations, so let's do more of them. Thank you very much. All the best meanwhile. All right. All right.